so we were okay with that. Um, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, please, and we're going to start at the end of that chapter. Uh, this morning, we are picking back up in our three-part series on Genesis. It's preparing us for our upcoming study in the book of Exodus, and so last Sunday, we covered the account of creation and fall. We looked at that story from the first three chapters. This morning, we're looking at the story of Abraham, and then next Sunday, we'll pick back up with the story of Joseph. The title for today's message is Know Your Story, God and Abraham. Know Your Story, God and Abraham. And just by, by way of introduction, as we, as we get going, you know, last week we heard that in order to know who you are, you need to know your story. In order to know who you are, you need to know your story. You need to know the story that you are a part of. And the story, church, that we are a part of starts right here, right in the first book of the Bible, in the beginning, in the book of Genesis. Genesis is, Genesis is not just a book of facts, right? Genesis is filled with stories that are meant to capture our imagination, that are meant to connect us to our true identity, and that are meant to call us into a life of obedience, to God, that's, that's why these stories exist and they have this effect on us. God uses stories. They're very, they're very powerful in shaping who we are and giving us our identity. Just wondering why stories, Mike Cosper has a quote in his book, The Stories We Tell in your notes there. He says, our identity stems less from information stored rationally and more from the stories embedded in the human imagination. Our imagination is the hook that attaches us to images, narratives, and even actions that transcend rational argument. This explains why corporations spend jaw-dropping amounts of money on marketing and advertisements. Companies eager to make a profit know a consumer won't hesitate to purchase something she imagines life will make life happier, even if the logic does not quite add up. So see, there's, there's a story, church, behind everything we do, especially behind the things we do that make no sense and that logically don't quite add up. So when we connect our lives to the story that God tells us, and not the wrong story. We saw last week where people connected their lives to the wrong story. Adam and Eve bought into the story that God cannot be trusted and that life apart from him would be better. And you know the rest of that story, right? So we, we gotta connect our lives to the true story that God is telling. And when we do that, we'll know more who we are and we'll know more the kind of life that we're called to Live. And that's why Moses wrote Genesis. That's why he penned these words. He knew that the people of Israel, right, the ones that we're looking at in the book of Exodus, if they're, if they're to know their calling in life and know their true identity in life, then they need to get in sync with God's interpretation of reality. Right? And the same is true for us. There's, there's this story behind the God of Exodus and it begins in the book of Genesis. It's told in the book of Genesis. Uh, Old Testament scholar Edmund Clowney, another quote for you as we introduce this. The first book of Moses, he says, Genesis, begins at the beginning to tell the story that leads to the calling of Israel and their exodus from Egypt. 
It is the book of generations, tracing not only the stories of the fathers of Israel, but putting their calling in the context of God's dealings with the whole human race from the time of creation. Although all the earth was his, Israel was God's chosen people, his precious possession. Yet Israel's calling was not for their sake alone. They were chosen from the nations that they might bear witness to the nations. And to do that, Israel needed to confess the God who called Abraham, spared Noah, and put Adam in the garden. They needed to know the story that God is telling. And, and the same is true for us this morning. And that's why we're, we're doing this series to remind us of who we are, who God is, and what he's called us to do. So let's pray and, and we'll look at the story of Abraham this morning. Lord, we are thankful for another Sunday where we can come and gather as your people in your name, under your rule, by your grace, Lord. Our, our, our chains are gone as we sang this morning. There's good news. We've been set free by you, Lord. You've rescued us and we're here to live for you, to love you, to worship you, to learn more about you. So by your spirit, I pray this morning that as your word is opened and preached that our eyes and hearts would open and our hearts would burn within us. We would, we would want to love you more, God. We would want to know you more. You would affect change in our life, Lord. This is not just a, a moment where we're just going through the process of a Sunday morning. Lord, we, we're here and you are here and that means you can do amazing things in our midst, amazing things in our hearts this morning. And I pray that you would do that, Lord. You would affect our lives for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, what exactly should we be learning from the story of Abraham this morning? I mean, there's so much to consider about this man's life. So where do we even start with this guy? We could spend the entire morning talking about the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, right? Where Abraham believed God and it was, it was counted to him as righteousness, Certainly, that would be worthy of our time. We could spend our time discussing world religions and, and tracing the roots of the three major religions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, back to Abraham and, and discuss international affairs, why they are what they are today. We could, we could look at the life of Abraham and just his amazing faith, and we could just learn some lessons about faith this morning. There's plenty we could talk about from the life of Abraham. So, so how do we approach this story? How do we cover these 12 chapters this morning? Well, here's, here's my proposal for us. Certainly there's a lot we can learn, and I can't cover it all. I can't even cover everything that we're gonna be looking at this morning. We could spend Sunday after Sunday looking at the text we're even covering this morning. But here's what I think God wants us to walk away with this morning. Okay, but there's this idea, guys, that's threaded throughout the story of Abraham. It's an idea that tells us not just about Abraham, but about God. And not just about God, but about us and, and how we're called to live with our God. Here's the story we get as we survey these 12 chapters. 
The story of Abraham tells us that God is seriously committed to rescuing his people so they would be seriously committed to obeying him. That's the big picture of the story of Abraham. In other words, God does, church, whatever it takes to rescue his people so that we would do whatever it takes to obey and follow him. He is serious about redeeming our broken lives and restoring us to ourself. Like, we are not disposable relationships with God. You're not just the maybe to God. God is not half-heartedly committed to us. He's, he's all in. He's seriously committed and he calls us to be all in too. And for us to be seriously committed to obeying him with our lives. David Wells puts it even more succinctly. He says, God turned to us so that we might turn to him. That's what we see in the life of Abraham. And just try to illustrate that for us this morning. Um, I've noticed that my older two daughters, anytime Judith Ann and I were at home, Hanging out, we just give each other, when we give each other a hug, um, what my older two do immediately is they, they just run right up to us and they scream, let me in, let me in. And so we're giving a hug and they're just running up and they're like, let, let us in between you guys. We want, we want to get in on this. We want in. And so they squeeze in between and we do one big family hug. See, they see this, they, they see this love on display. And, and they want in on it, right? Even the baby does. She can't run up to it. She just claps in her chair. It's like, we want in on it, right? It's that like, uh, that first John 4 thing, like we love God because God first loved us. That's what's going on here. God's seriously committed to our rescue, no matter the cost, no matter the cost, so that we would we'll be seriously committed to obeying him no matter the cost. And that's the big picture. And, and this morning we're going to look at three scenes from the life of Abraham that portray this truth for us. Uh, there's many scenes we could look at. I have to just choose some here. We're going to look at these three. Uh, scene one is Abraham and the call. Scene two is Abraham and the covenant. And scene three is Abraham and the test, all right? Scene one, we're gonna open up to Genesis 11, look at verse 27, to what many believe this to be the most crucial event in the Bible between the fall of Adam and the birth of Christ. Many will put their finger right here and say, this moment in redemptive history. Before we read it, before we read about the call of Abraham, here's a little background of what's going on, right? This uh, last Sunday, we saw the plight of the human race and its need for salvation, didn't we? Pastor Evan did such a helpful job laying that out for us. Adam and Eve, by their disobedience and eating from the tree, left mankind in a state of darkness and spiritual death. Paradise was theirs, we saw, but paradise was lost. But... We also saw that not everything was lost. Into the darkness, into the hopelessness, God speaks words of mercy, doesn't he? You know what he does? You know what he does? He, he makes a promise. And he promises that there's gonna be an offspring 
who's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, and he's going to make everything right again. He's going to reverse the curse of sin, and he's going to restore us to our maker. There's an offspring coming. There's a promise God makes. And from Genesis 3 on, we're not looking at all those chapters between 3 and 12, but from Genesis 3 on, this offspring becomes the source of hope for God's people to be rescued. It traces the line of this offspring from that on. But story after story, if you read in Genesis, only shows us the world spiraling just deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness and into sin. We don't have time to recount all the stories here, but by the time we get to Abraham, not much has changed since the fall. Wickedness increased, right? So flood waters came. A tower was constructed. A tower falls. Just mankind still rejecting their maker. Still wanting to do life on their own. Still buying into the wrong story. And believing the lie that they don't need God. That's where we find ourselves in the life of Abraham. Because guess what? His life was absolutely no exception to this. Look at me with Genesis eleven twenty seven in these verses. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. By the way, I'm, I'm going to be using the name Abraham throughout our time here. Uh, Abram was uh, obviously Abraham's name. God changed his name later in life. Abraham means father of many. Abram means exalted father. But just for our sanity, I'm just going to use Abraham the whole time, all right? So um, picking back up, Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his his son Abraham's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. We don't see it explicitly there, but these verses tell us that humanity was in an utterly hopeless condition. Terah, Abraham's father, you look back a few verses earlier, he's from the line that the offspring's coming through. His great, 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 great grandfather is Shem, Noah's son. Noah, Adam. Here's the offspring. Here's the family. Here's the family that God is getting ready to, to keep his promise to, right? That, that, that the promise that God would rescue us would go through this family. Here they are. Hopelessness. The family line God promised to rescue the world through, their condition 
is not what you think. The true family, church, that should have been preserving knowledge of God and furthering his purposes, instead find themselves worshiping false idols and gods. You don't get that from here, but Joshua 24, 2, listen to this. Just before going into the promised land, we read Joshua, he says this to all the people. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abram, and Nahor, and they served other gods. The word Terra means moon. The city of Ur, modern day Baghdad, was known for its lunar worship. Here's a family of pagan worshiping people. The family that should have been preserving the knowledge of God, they're in utter darkness. You realize what's happened, right? The last little spiritual flame had had flickered out. They lost God spiritually. And physically, their future seemed hopeless. Sarah was barren. Is God gonna keep his promise? Because that family, it sure doesn't look like that's going to happen, right? That's what's going on here. There's no foreseeable future. Uh, Any hope for humanity had literally hit a dead end with this family. But thankfully, we see that God keeping his promise does not depend on man, but it depends on God himself. And so God graciously, just like in the beginning, just like in chapter three, God graciously speaks into darkness. He he speaks hope into hopelessness. He speaks words of promise into a world of plight. Look at chapter 12, verse one through three with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, just amazing that God would even speak to this. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just when all hope seems lost Church, God graciously speaks. And listen, in doing so, he continues the process of the promised rescue mission. He moves it forward. God said, Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna give you a land to possess. And I'm gonna bless you greatly, Abraham. And here's here's why. It's so that you would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. My rescue plan is coming through you, Abraham. You're in darkness. You have no intention to follow me. I'm going to call you out of that, and I'm going to call you to go, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world through you. God is so gracious to his people. Just like Abraham Church, none of us are qualified for God to be gracious to us. It doesn't matter our background, whether we grew up in church or not. It doesn't matter how nice we are or how bad we are. We all need the call of God on our life or life is one big dead end. We all need it. 
We are in spiritual darkness apart from God's saving grace, and we are completely hopeless. But God, but God, but God lovingly calls us out of darkness into a life with him, giving us hope and a future. So the apostle Peter, he, he says, God, God took us from a, a kingdom of darkness and he, he brought us into his marvelous light. Paul writes in Colossians, we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the, the kingdom of the sun. He says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. God is gracious to his people. God's call of Abraham is absolutely gracious. Regardless of humanity's failure to worship God as God, regardless of our rejection of him as God, God keeps his promise to rescue his people. He's, he's seriously committed to rescuing his people. That's what we see here. We see that God doing that for us. But you know what we also see? We also see that he does this so we would be committed to seriously obeying him. Look at verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham went. Don't you just love the simplicity here? Okay, God, I'll obey you. And he goes. He lovingly obeys. And that, that's the story. And that's, that's our story as well. God calls us out of darkness that we would lovingly obey him. We belong to God so that we would obey God God has rescued you so that, so that you would completely surrender your life to his calling on your life. That's why God's rescued us. We, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong entirely to him. All right, so we, we take our hands off of our life. This means we, we, get, we get off the throne. We're no longer in charge. We get out of the driver's seat. We're in the background, right? We're no longer the main character. We're following God. Our world revolves around him. He is the center. That's what Abraham does. He leaves everything that's valuable to him. Everything that gave him an identity in life. Everything that said security, future. He walks away from it because God's called him to something greater. And he obeys, he obeys, he does what God calls him to do. That's the Christian life, isn't it? It's a life of living by faith in God's promises that results in a life of obedience to God's word. Hebrews eleven eight says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, I love that. Give me, a, give me a clear picture, God, I'll obey you. Now just go, Abraham. There's, I'm gonna show you a land. Not right now. Just go. Leave everything. Follow me. 
Leave everything, church. Anything that you think has more of your affections than God. Anything that gives you a sense of identity more than God. Anything that gives you a, a sense of security more than God. Anything we bow down to that's not God, leave it and follow God and obey his commands. That's what being seriously committed to God looks like here in Abraham and the call. Doing what God tells you to do, even if it costs you everything, even if you don't have the full picture, right? So, so Abraham goes, but if, if you read all of his story, which we're not gonna have time to do this morning, you're gonna see he has his own struggles of doubts, doesn't he, and folly along the way? I mean, he's human like us, certainly. But the dominant feature of Abraham's life, it's not his struggles, it's not his doubts or failures. The dominant feature, and the reason the New Testament authors mention him so much, is this man's amazing faith to obey the call of God on his life. So he obeys, he goes, and because God is seriously committed to rescuing his people, Abraham is seriously committed to obeying God. And, and even our failures can never foil. We see the good future God has for those who belong to him. Isn't that good news, and we're going to see that really vividly in this next scene here. Scene two, God and the covenant. Sorry, Abraham and the covenant. It could be called God and the covenant too. Uh, Genesis 15. You flip over a page there. Genesis 15. Look at verses one through six. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And we sang about that this morning, didn't we? Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is the laser of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. And he brought him outside. And he said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, which of course he's not. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In the opening verses of this chapter, we see Abraham struggling to trust God. God. God's promised him a land. He's promised him an offspring. And Abraham has no heir and no land to call his own yet. So Abraham's like, God, what's up? Where are you, man? I mean, I'm, I'm doing this thing. I'm following you. I'm taking this seriously. A little confusing here because I don't, I don't see you being serious on your end. What, what's going on here? You're not following through on your promises. How can I know you will keep your promise? And God just patiently and graciously deals with Abraham. And he, he reminds him of his promise. He takes him outside. He, he shows him the stars in the heaven. And he just says, so shall be your offspring, Abraham. And, and Abraham believes. But God doesn't stop there in this chapter. And this is what we're getting to. He doesn't stop there. He, he wants to take it a step further. He wants to just solidify his promises with Abraham. And he wants to deepen Abraham's faith even more. 
And so in a very strange encounter, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Look at verses 9 to 11. He said to him, God saying to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. What in the world is happening here? <laughs> that sounds weird, doesn't it? Well, Abraham knows what's going on. He knows a covenant is being drawn up between him and God. Because this word isn't used a lot in our day, I realize there could be some people here that are like, cover what? What's he, what's he talking about? Covenant? Well, so let me give you a, a definition. Covenant is... It's the word God uses to describe his relationship with his people. And it's in your notes there. A covenant is an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. It's how God relates to us. It's like a contract. We get that, right? Okay, so this is like a, a much more serious contract here, and, and God's about to make this covenant with Abraham, right? Think about like a relational contract, like a, a marriage ceremony, right? The, the bride and the groom, they, they stand before witnesses, before God, they, they make promises to one another. Then what do they do, right? They sign. They put ink to paper. And they say, all right, I'm, I'm following through. I'm signing this, and by doing so, I recognize there are going to be consequences if I break my word right here. So they're making promises. It's, it's a contract. It's a legal document, right? They, we don't just say things. We sign. And God, God's not just saying a promise to Abraham. He's, he's going he's gonna to prove it. It just looks a lot different than in our culture. So if you say, how do, you know, how do I know I'm going to keep your promise? In our culture, we sign. That's how we affirm our promise. That's not how it works in Abraham's day. They don't put ink to paper. What they do, here's what they do. They actually act out what's gonna happen to you if you're unfaithful to your word. They take an animal, some animals, they, they slay it, cut it in half, put it on the ground, and they walk between the pieces of it. And in essence, what they're saying is, may this be done to me if I don't keep my word. So that's what's, that's what's going on here. A covenant has promises, there's blessing. You keep, the pro you keep the conditions, there's blessing. There's life with God forever. But a covenant has curses as well, consequences. You break it, may this happen to you. That's what's being said here. In every case, there's the consequence of the shedding of blood. Bruce Waltke writes about this ritual in your notes, another quote. According to extant ancient Near Eastern texts, passing between the slain animals is a ritual that invokes a curse on the participants if they break the covenant. To walk between the carc carcasses is to submit oneself to the fate of the slaughtered animals as a penalty for covenant 
breaking. That's pretty effective, right? What if we just implemented that into the marriage ceremony? <laughs> so as Abraham went and set up the animals, right, he, he knows what's happening. He knew this is a covenant ceremony, but listen, guys, Abraham had no clue what God was about to do. It wasn't gonna work how it normally works. God was gonna do something very different. Let's read all the way through, starting at, chapter, starting at verse 12 in chapter 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, i.e. Exodus, right? Um, but... I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Plagues are coming. Um, I lost my place. <laughs> I will bring judgment on the way that the nation they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go out to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So once that is complete, God brings them out of Egypt and brings them to the promised land. Verse 17, here's where it gets different from what Abraham expected. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Church, the, the flaming torch, the smoking pot, that, that's representative of God's presence. And the astonishing rescuing act of God here is not only that, that God himself is passing between these people. It's amazing that God will even want to make a covenant with us. But you know what's even more amazing? Only God passes through these pieces. That's crazy. Abraham's out, man. I mean, dude's knocked out. Dreadful darkness over this guy. He's not walking through the pieces. God alone is walking through the pieces. And here's what it means. God is saying, Abraham, I'm going through it for both of us. Abraham, I'm gonna keep my promise. And if I break it, may I be cut to pieces. And Abraham, if you break it, may I be cut to pieces. God is serious about rescuing his people, amen? God's saying, I'm so seriously committed to rescuing you and being in relationship with you, even if it means I have to die and be torn to pieces like these animals. I'm all in. That's the gospel. 
Because, church, listen, centuries later, a dreadful darkness came down again. But this time, as it was on Mount Calvary, it fell on God himself. Because of our unfaithfulness to God, we don't keep this covenant. Because of our unfaithfulness to God, to keep and obey the conditions of the covenant, church, we were not cursed, but God himself was cursed. God was cut off. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Our punishment, we rightly deserve, was poured out on him. Think about it. On the cross, on the cross, Jesus absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the covenant. He he takes the curse for us. And he leaves us the blessing. Through his perfect life, he, he earns the blessing. He obeys perfectly. He keeps those conditions perfectly. And on the cross, he took our curse. And for all who believe in him, you get the blessing of life with God forever. What an amazing God. What a gracious God. Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for us, Paul writes, that we might become the righteousness of God. God is seriously committed to rescuing his people. And church, listen, when we understand this, when when this gets deep into us and this becomes our story, you know what it does to us? You see how serious God is? Well, man, it, it makes us get serious, doesn't it? I'm gonna be all in, God. You die for me? You love me? How can I not love you? My whole life is yours. You get serious about loving God with everything you are. If you're not serious about loving God with everything you are, there's a deficiency in your understanding of what took place on the cross. Famous missionary C.T. Studd writes this. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Amen? Jesus died for you so that you might live to him. And, And when we fail to do so, because listen, we will. That's why God took the curse. He knows. When we fail to do so, listen. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't you see? The curse fell on him. The curse isn't ever going to fall on you if you have Jesus. So, So you see the message here. Like, Resist sin like crazy, man. Make your life a big sin-resisting party. Get serious about it. And if you fail, you don't wallow in condemnation. God's not going to curse you. He poured that out on his son. 
So you confess your sins, and if you're a Christian, you'll do this. You confess your sins to God, and you thank him for forgiving you, and you get back on the path of following and obeying him. That's the Christian life. There's no condemnation. Resist sin like crazy. Go all out for God. He's gone all out for you. He's not spared his own son for you. Is there sin in your life you need to get serious about? Life is so much better on the other side out of that darkness. God, God took you out of that darkness. He took us out. Let us not go back in. Let us walk in the light as he is in the light. And enjoy the freedom that Christ has won for us on the cross. So God rescues us at great cost to himself that we would obey him at great cost to ourselves. That we would die to ourselves and our desires to follow him. And as the story of Abraham continues, we see him growing in his faith, right? God, God continues to work in his life. Abraham continues to grow. At age 99, he gets circumcised. That's serious obedience right there, right, man? <laughs> I mean, he, Abraham's pretty serious, right? But, but, but you also see some major blunders in this man's life. Remember, he's human, you see some blunders in Abraham's life, right? If, you, if you've read the story, you know about Hagar, you know about Ishmael, you know about King Abimelech, Abraham's journeys into Egypt, how God just steps in every time and rescues him. Abraham continues to walk by faith, and, and, and God finally keeps his promise as we come to one of the last stories here, and he, he gives Abraham and Sarah what they've been waiting for, their, their very own boy. God has made laughter for me, Sarah said. They, they, they can't believe it. There's just no doubt whatsoever that this boy's come from God, and God's kept his promise. Here's your heir, which brings us to scene three. Abraham and the test. God promised, if you remember back in Genesis 12, that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to many, right? And then he goes on and says, they're gonna be as numerous as the stars in the heaven. They're gonna be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I'm gonna rescue all my people. And it's happening through you. But Sarah is unable to have children. So, God keeps his promise in her old age. She gives birth to Isaac. Finally, church, we see the family line through which God was going to rescue the world is moving forward. Okay, making sense now. Getting a little clarity here. We have a son. God's keeping his promise. Everything's finally making sense. God's promises were coming true before Abraham's very eyes. Sure, he didn't have the land, but you know what? God never promised he would actually possessed the land. He promised that his descendants would possess the land. Abraham dies with a little plot of land. He and his wife are buried. God's keeping his promise. And then Genesis 22 happened. And Abraham's faith would be tested like it was never tested before. Go ahead and look with me there at that chapter. Chapter 22. 
After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am, here am I. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Wait, what? This, this is the promise. God, I thought you keep, you made the covenant. I thought you keep your promises. What? You're calling me to sacrifice my son. Not only the, the, the son whom I love, the son that's near and dear to me that, that I love, but the son that you're going to bless the world through and keep your promise through. What is going on here? The death of Isaac, all would be lost. God was asking Abraham to sacrifice his own son without ever telling him why. See, he's testing Abraham. This isn't like a pass-fail test. Right? This is like a, a test that purifies us. Like, like when gold is held to fire, or precious metal, and the dross burns off and it leaves the gold more refined, more pure. That's what's going on. God is purifying. He's refining Abraham's faith. He's calling Abraham to deeper and deeper obedience. You, you, you experience that in your own life? God just putting things in your life that just require great Great steps of obedience and faith. And it's just to purify us, to make us more like Christ. That's what God's doing here. But that's not new for Abraham. It should not be new for Abraham. God has been lovingly dealing with Abraham like this ever since he called him out of Ur. One minister sums up God's interaction with Abraham like this. Listen, God says, Abraham, I'm going to send you out. Abraham says, where? God says, I'll tell you later, just go. God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. Abraham says, where? God says, I'll tell you later. Just wander. God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham says, when? God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait. And finally, God gives him a child and says, Abraham, kill him. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just walk up the mountain. John Owen says, sometimes through God's providence, there may appear to be inconsistency between God's commands and his promises. And when that happens, when God's calling you to do something that just, it's hard to make sense of, but you want to trust him. Listen, nothing but faith bowing the soul to divine sovereignty can reconcile this. I trust you, God. I trust you. You're good. As Christians, we know he's good. He has not spared his son for us. We trust you. We're gonna bow our soul to your sovereign goodness. We're gonna follow you. So Abraham, being the man of faith he is, he bows his soul. He, he follows God and up the mountain they go. Abraham's got his knife. Isaac's got the wood. Both are trusting God. Not knowing how God's going to keep his promise, they go. Let's read what happens next. Verse 3. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Look at that. Abraham's trusting God. We're coming back. I and the boy will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided what what just happened here what's well, just the same thing that's been happening god's committed to rescuing his people so they would be committed to obeying him listen god god was showing abraham that he's committed to keeping his promise that he won't let abraham sacrifice isaac after all, by, by putting a ram in the bushes, God provides a substitute to take Isaac's place for him. The ram dies, Isaac goes free, the promise continues. And listen, centuries later, another only son would carry wood up a mountain. And many believe this is the same exact mountain. Up Golgotha. And he would go with his loving father, knife in hand, walking side by side. But this time, and we know this story, this time, no one screams stop. This time, God himself was the substitute. God himself was in our place. The Lamb of God was in our place. See, by putting Christ on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, God the Father provides a substitute to take our place. See, Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, hung, bled, and died on the cross so that we might live and go free and enjoy blessing with God.
we might live and, and we don't face divine judgment for our sins. The knife doesn't come down on us. The wrath that we deserve for all of our sins does not come down on us. It comes down on the Lamb of God, on Christ, on God himself in the flesh. And he's a substitute for us in our place. God is, God is seriously committed to rescuing his people. So much so that he took his only son. You notice the language in that story, your only son. The son you love. God took his only son. The son he's loved for all eternity. And puts him on the cross and he takes his life instead of ours so that we would go free. In our place condemned, Jesus stood. This is the love of God poured out on us, church. Amen? This is good news. What more can God do to convince us of his commitment to rescue us than not spare his own son for us? This is what he's pointing Abraham to. I'm gonna provide, Abraham. I'm always gonna provide, and I'm always gonna rescue no matter what happens, my promise will go forward. And what more can you do, church, than to seriously trust and obey him? God, he's probably doing that to some of you right now. God's asking you to do some serious things in your life. God's, God's asking you to do some really hard things in your life. And it's not gonna be easy, but we see in this story, he will be with you. He will care for you. It might not make sense at all, but he's committed to rescuing you. So let's obey him, all right? Abraham obeys, they go up the mountain. He obeys right until the last moment where the angel of the Lord says, stop. He doesn't have the full picture. He's probably got tears in his eyes wondering what in the world, but I trust you, God. This is so hard, but I trust you. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. And, and we're not called to do that either. We see where he does do that in different places of this story. But he trusts God. He does what God calls him to do regardless of how hard it seems or what it would cost him. Eric, you guys can come on back up. Um, again, I, I wish we could give so much more time. We're, we're doing this series to prepare us for Exodus. We could spend tons of time in Genesis. But this story, church, the story of Abraham is a story of God's commitment to rescue us and our commitment to obey him. That's what we see here. God rescues us so we belong to him. And as, as people who belong to him, we're called to obey him. And while this story is one of the most amazing stories in the Bible, we, we've seen all throughout that it's actually pointing us to the story of the Bible, isn't it? It's pointing us to the amazing story of Jesus, the true and greater Abraham, who, when called to go to here, earth, 
Leave heaven and come here. He goes and he comes and he rescues us. He fulfills the promise to make us sons and daughters of God, to make us children. And he calls us into his family to bless us. That's what these stories are all about. And we see that unlike Abraham, Christ himself was not blessed. Christ was cursed. Christ, Christ hung on the tree. He died for you and me so that we would have blessing and live with God forever. And so when you read the book of Hebrews and you see these wonderful examples of Old Testament heroes of faith, right, that, that the author outlines in chapter 11 and he's pointing us to these examples of faith and then stirring in us desires to follow them and, and to obey God as they did. Notice, notice who he tells you to look to though. Now, here's all these examples. They're great. They should stir in us a desire to obey God, but look to somebody else. Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so, uh, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us, let us obey. Let us get serious about obeying. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. He doesn't go back and pull one of the examples from the Old Testament heroes of faith. He points to the fulfillment of those heroes. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the faith he had and what God had promised, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse three, consider him, church. Look to him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and you're following God or faint-hearted. Verse four, in your struggle against sin, that's what it is, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Christ has perfectly obeyed for us. He has bore our curse on the cross, shedding his blood that we would have blessing from God and be restored with God for all of eternity. Uh, it's totally appropriate to look to Jesus and to consider Jesus this morning as we seek to obey. And this morning, here's how we're gonna conclude. Uh, we're going to conclude our time by participating in communion together. And as we do this, here's what, I, here's what I want you to keep in mind. Here's what I believe God wants you to keep in mind. Let's celebrate, right? Church, let's celebrate that God is seriously committed to rescuing us. If you're his, you can't mess that up. He's seriously committed to rescuing us. And, and secondly, let's renew our commitment to be seriously committed to obeying him. Amen? That's what we're going to be doing right now by participating in communion. We're celebrating Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ultimate fulfilling the promises of rescuing us. We're also renewing our commitment to be all in 
and to follow him. So ushers, you guys can come on up. This morning we looked at the covenant God made with Abraham. Uh, Years later, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 34, God promises to make a new covenant with his people, one in which he would write his law on our hearts and remember our lawless deeds and sins no more. One in which he promises, I will be their God. They will be my people forever. That's what this new covenant signifies. It signifies the forgiveness of sins, of all sins, washed away, totally cleansed, past, present, future sins. They're gone. They were put on Christ. His blood was shed. And that's how he sealed the promise. Christ shed his blood for us. Jesus said in Luke 22, this cup that we have in front of us, this cup, what this symbolizes is is poured out for you. It's my blood poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. He's keeping his promise. We're remembering that right now. Jesus died to set us free from the sins we committed. So now anyone who calls on Jesus, anyone who believes in Jesus can have their sins completely forgiven. And you will not be cursed. You will be blessed. And you will reign and live with God forever and ever. And if you have done that, this is our opportunity to celebrate. If if you've not done that, I just want to encourage you. You can do that today. You don't have to have it all together. We saw Abraham. He's worshiping idols. He's completely lost. He cares nothing about God and doing what God wants him to do. And God miraculously and mercifully saves that man. And he can do that to you today. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can do that today. And you can celebrate. You can party with us right now. And you can celebrate the fact that Christ has died for you. Let me encourage you to do that. If, if, if right now you're feeling this, is, this might not be the time, that's okay too. But just let me encourage you to please not participate in this meal together. You may just stay in your seats and, and think about what you've heard here today and pray that God would help you see what he has done for you. On the night of his arrest and hours before his crucifixion, Jesus commanded all Christians to eat the bread and drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. So as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we are proclaiming Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. The bread symbolizing Christ's body, which was sacrifice for us, the blood symbolize, the, the cup symbolizing his blood poured out for us. We're reminded of God's commitment to rescue us while we do this. So let's, let's be reminded together. Let's enjoy that together. And just starting from the front, you guys, y'all can work your way forward and, um, and we'll go from front to back here and celebrate what God has done together. And the, the band's going to lead us in a song to help us reflect on, on what God has done and help us respond in gratitude to Jesus Christ.